Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. Today, we have two guests together. We have Dr. Katie Harrell, who's a board-certified family physician and founder of Argave Family Medicine and Breastfeeding Support Center, along with Dr. Brad Dreyfus, who is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and the director of rural and global health program at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. On this first episode, they share with us how they got involved in advocacy, and we decided to bring them back for a second episode, so this isn't the whole conversation. Let's take a listen. Brad Dreyfus and Katie Harrell, we want to thank you for coming and joining us today, because I think that advocacy is something that we haven't talked about a whole lot. We have we have talked about the ideas, but we haven't talked about the substance. And so it was really great when I met you and started learning about what you're doing. And I thought our listeners would want to have a whole lot more information about how you got into this and sort of what it's been like. So I wonder if either Brad or Katie, if you want to just sort of give us a bit of a hint of what you're doing in the world of advocacy at the moment. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Wendy, for having us. Um, We're really excited to be here to be talking about the the work that we've been doing, um, not only uh, around the work that we've done here in Arizona with uh, an organization called Right to Save Daisy Schools, but with some of the other organizations that we've been involved with uh, over the years. Um, You know, Brad and I actually met, interestingly enough, we were both faculty with the University of Arizona at the time, but had never really crossed paths with the work that we were doing there. We actually met on Twitter because of um, our our common goals in terms of centering equity within our communities and focusing on advocacy for various populations within our community. Um, He had been really involved. Uh, in starting a, an organization, a nonprofit during the pandemic that provided safe housing for healthcare workers who were being exposed to COVID-19 in those early days when we really were certain about the, the means of transmission and wanted to be able to protect them and their families from transmission within their homes. Um, and I had actually started a nonprofit around that same time that was focusing on public health education and uh, centering health equity. So, um, you know, Brad, do you have anything else to add to that kind of origin story for the the intersectional work that we've been doing over the years? First of all, thank you very much for having us. Um, Yeah, I feel like the fact that Katie and I have been working in our own areas um, and working in advocacy, I think, is probably in our blood to some degree. But more and more over over the years, um, I think is really important. So this is not our, for either of us, our only um, experience into being more of a public voice or building support or better understanding what's needed for um, our communities. So I I do think it was very timely that HCW hosted um, was we were building that for our healthcare workers psychological first aid, housing, et cetera. Um, but also really to bring the voice of healthcare workers to the fore. And as Katie was saying, that's that's been an area that she has been very much interested in, in the public sphere. And so that alignment, and I can just bring it down to the term alignment between 
mission and values, um, I think it was really the fodder to get started. And then, honestly, for me to get involved with others in any kind of advocacy work or anything where we're kind of working together on any project, really it takes understanding what really drives them and really having an understanding of their integrity, how they've how they've worked in other groups previously. Um, and so it was it was very well timed and um, you know, Katie was kind of an ideal partner um, and part of a group that was already working. So it was kind of a no brainer to get involved because I'd be able to level up on my own skills. Brad and Katie, can you give us a little bit of your backgrounds? Why you? What was it about your background that made this work interesting for you? And and why did you get into it? And what kind of physician are you? Well, you know, I, I'm so just a little bit of background about me professionally. I'm a family physician and I was formerly faculty with the University of Arizona um, at our South Campus Residency Program um, prior uh prior to my leaving there and starting a private practice and starting this nonprofit that's really focusing on health equity and community health education. Um, but, you know, I've always really felt that fulfilling my moral obligation to patients involves advocating for the health and community needs of those that I serve. So I had started my advocacy journey well before this in medicine through uh, my state AAFP chapter, uh, which then led to some work nationally within the organization focusing on health equity. And that really over the years just evolved. Um, I started running for some positions with the AAFP. I was uh, going to our national conference of constituency leaders and getting uh, some leadership training around effective advocacy, both you know within the realm of medicine, but also in in our communities. Uh, and then you know since then, I've really forged a lot of interesting relationships with other like-minded individuals both locally in the state, but also nationally um, that are focused on this work. So it, it's really been kind of an evolution for me. And uh, it's been a really fascinating journey, actually. And I can't really tell you why me, other than I just felt that this was just as important as the care that I provide to my patients when I'm sitting in front of them in, in, in the exam room. You know, making sure that I'm actually fulfilling that moral obligation is essential because there are so many needs that are influenced by health policy and by these other outside forces that are beyond the control of what happens and, and transpires in that moment when we're in the exam room together. What about you, Brad? I'm an emergency physician and have been in public health as well for about the last um, 10 to 12 years. And I went into medicine um, specifically because of living and working abroad and understanding the dynamism between social, social issues and public health and policy and what we are able to do as physicians with our patients to address their healthcare needs. Um, so really, for me, at least comes from a, a humanism perspective, I believe, more than anything else. And, and if we're going to be having our physician-patient relationships really identify barriers at a family level, community level, a state level, on and on. We're identifying areas where we can actually help improve our ability to care for patients um, and helping patients be able to better care for themselves. 
So it's been a part of my journey since before medical school. And I felt like, especially emergency medicine being the front line of healthcare was the optimal specialty for me. And so I've been um, working in capacity development uh, internationally, working in Uganda and Nepal uh, with partners there for the last 10 years, 12 years, um, and have been active with the American College of Emergency Physicians and within my own specialty since the time I was a medical student. And I had faculty members uh, who brought us in to learn about advocacy and to learn about governance and understanding how all the pieces come together so we can actually care for our patients more effectively. You know, and I also just want to add along those same lines, you know, kind of reflecting back on the the why me, I think that as a physician and physicians in general, you know, being a physician comes with with privilege and status. And why would we not want to use that position in our society to advocate for the needs and for the greater good and to make our world a better place to be in? Katie, that is a wonderful way of saying it, and I couldn't agree with you more. That said, I would love for you to step back and give us the elementary school version of what is advocacy and, you know, how do you begin at this? Like, what, what do you do? You know, for those of us who have some idea about it, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what advocacy is itself and how you go about it. Advocacy starts with listening, observing, trying to understand how the pieces come together to either in, in healthcare lead to specific policies, whether it be in the workplace or whether it be in the public sphere, that affect our ability to care for patients or patient outcomes. But understanding what the stakeholders or particularly your stakeholders that you're advocating for really want and need. And I think that comes that requires some cultural humility in understanding our intersectionality um, and and who we can represent. And while I feel like that's part of the base of advocacy, it's often the Achilles heel and and biggest challenge when we're talking about individuals who are working in advocacy or we're talking about advocacy groups. You know, and and along those same lines, and I absolutely agree, I think that that centering, uh, listening and really hearing the voices of those that are being disproportionately affected by the issues at hand, whatever those may be, because advocacy can look very different ways and it's not, not all about politics, it's not all about just social issues. There are many different ways that you can add advocate for the needs of a given community. Um, but I also think that what is so important to me personally about advocacy is it does allow for the corrective action of certain injustices um, in whatever context that is. And, and I think that that's why I've always been so driven uh, because I don't like to sit back and feel helpless. Um, you know, when I'm seeing suffering, when I'm seeing pain, when I'm seeing those injustices, I'm always trying to think about what measures, what steps can be taken to correct those issues. And that's exactly what advocacy is. It's, it's allowing for the means to provide those corrective actions in some way, shape, or form. I think that's beautifully well put. I, I also think the community, sometimes I think community has been explained to me by a medical anthropologist as being more than our 
people in the geographic area. Community is actually really built around actions and ideas. And so I, I especially as physicians, we are incredibly privileged. And with that privilege comes incredible responsibility to be thinking about those who don't have necessarily the same privileges or those who are more marginalized than we are, whether it be within our workplace and advocating for appropriate workplace safety for our physicians and nurses and all of our, all of our team members, or whether it be on behalf of our patients or advocating for our healthcare workers to then benefit our patients and our communities. So there's definitely multiple steps. Yeah, so I feel like with advocacy, it, it's a little bit like art, where when we don't know much about it, we all come into it saying, oh, okay, art is drawing or painting, and you forget that it can also be, it could be typography, it can be woodworking, it can be, it can be fabric crafts, it can be all of that, fiber work. And I feel like advocacy is the same thing. So when people who don't know a whole lot about it come into it, it looks like going and testifying before the city council or before the FTC or something like that. But it doesn't necessarily have to look like that, right? So can you just help people understand what the other options are? Advocacy is really dynamic, and I really appreciate that analogy, Wendy, um, because, you know, you can even argue along that same analogy, the same line, that just like art, um, the effectiveness is really subject to interpretation and, and really subject to the lens in which you are viewing advocacy. Um, you know, there are all sorts of ways to be an effective advocate, however. You know, it's not all about politics. It doesn't have to be along party lines. You can be advocating for um, the needs of your community along the lines of uh, operational, structural, or behavioral change uh, with voter behavior, with policy change, um, you know, health policy, public health policy. Um, you can even advocate to empower community members so that you can improve civic engagement. I mean, there are so many different ways that you can be an effective advocate. It doesn't have to be this black or white type of um, engagement within the sphere of, of advocacy. To add on that, advocacy really is about finding voice helping elevate voice and allowing people the opportunity to use their voice in ways that feel comfortable for them. And that often grows from being able to, someone feeling, feeling comfortable put their signature on a petition that they support to then testifying in front of a school board or even having a colleague be able to feel like they can speak up in a meeting if they are part of a marginalized group within that specific context. So it can really start small. And what I've found is as people find others who are also trying to find ways to use their voice effectively, they get more and more confident and actually grow their advocacy and essentially move up that chain to kind of those higher levels of where people may be testifying in front of the FTC or maybe meeting with politicians. But honestly, I feel like Advocacy might be most effective when it's really grassroots and not necessarily associated with politics, especially in our very divisive political ecosystem right now. Not much gets done when it's coming from a Democrat versus Republican perspective. 
So let's say there's somebody listening today who says, I'm seeing injustice in my system, in my neighborhood, in my community, or I'm seeing something going on in my hospital that I think should be brought to the fore. What's your advice to that person? And, and after you give them advice, what should they do? How do they find their voice? How do they express their voice? That's a fantastic question. And I think it honestly starts with the people closest to them. If you're seeing an injustice in your clinical space, making sure that it's not just your perception is important. So talking with other colleagues who have um, a, a proximal vantage point, understanding the reasons for why we might be seeing what we're seeing, and then honestly collecting data on it can be very useful. Um, collecting data, how often is this situation happening? Is, are there other avenues, are there other, are there other actions that could be taken which are going to be less cost less social capital or political capital to rectify, right? And so that first step is just making sure it's not just your perception and then understanding the ecosystem in which that's happening. Because once you have a few people who are seeing this, it can be brought to the fore, especially if it's with an idea of how it can be changed and not just a complaint with no proposed solution. I agree. You know, advocacy to some extent is just really involved problem solving. Um, it's seeing, hey, here's a problem. There are these injustices. How do we gather more data around the structure of this problem? And how do we come up with some creative solutions? So starting those conversations is incredibly integral to problem solving, right? We have to be talking with our colleagues. We have to be talking with those who would be impacted by this, um, you know, getting a sense of, is this something that is just a perception here? Is, you know, in all likelihood, if you're seeing that this is a problem, others are probably seeing it too. And oftentimes, especially in the workplace, we can suffer from complacency of the status quo. Uh, so starting those conversations and just, you know, saying, hey, are, are you experiencing this as well is just the very first step that you have to take. And then I agree the data collection is really important, but having having some reasonable solutions to propose to whatever that issue is, is equally important, right? Because otherwise we're really not solving the problem. We're just complaining about the structure that is a problem without having some alternative model. So. What I'm wondering is if each of you have a story about the first time you really got into advocacy, like what hooked you and what kept you going? I think my first work in advocacy started at 16 or 17 years old, working at a suicide hotline for a homeless youth shelter and starting to work with the homeless youth and really understanding what they want and needed on the streets, and then having a bunch of us be able to go out and obtain resources, soaps, first aid, food, what have you, for backpacks, right? So then we could actually working start working with um, the folks who ran the organization, Oasis Center, this is in Nashville, Tennessee, to start working on the harm mitigation, start trying to help offer more services to these young homeless kids who were my age. And so seeing the impact on that 
and having that kind of grassroots coming from a place of privilege as a well-homed high school kid who is going to college to then be working with our homeless youth and seeing their successes, right? Seeing them get in, into housing, seeing them get jobs. That was for me, it was the first exposure of, wow, we can actually really make a difference and they can start using their voice when they have their basic needs covered. That was really powerful. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. You know, after thinking about this, I think that really the the experience where I became the most fired up about advocacy was my first advocacy conference with AAFP. I was actually asked by our state chapter to attend as uh, the state's women delegate to go and um, be able to vote on policy within the organization. And it was something that I had been pretty detached from, from an organizational standpoint. You know, I had been involved um, more politically in the state with some board work here in the state. Um, but I, I really was fairly removed from what their framework was and how that organization ran and why it was important to pass policy even internally um, within the medical community. The AAFP has one of the largest lobbies on Capitol Hill. And so if we were able to pass policy internally that actually directed um, dollars through the organization to the lobby group, then that meant that we had a presence really pushing around certain issues that influence health policy nationally. And when I finally really understood that after going to this first conference and then being elected as the Women's Caucus leader and just really starting my career with the AAFP in, in my advocacy role with them, um, that's when I would say that I just really, really became fired up about it. It, it was something that I was able to really take back and you could translate to other structures um, in the world of, of politics and health policy. Yeah. I'd say in the health policy side, I think mine would definitely have to come from working with the American College of Emergency Physicians, going to our legislative and advocacy conference in D.C in the early teens and seeing how we can bring our voices of our colleagues to our legislators to actually result in some meaningful change. The money piece, I think, was lost on me until much later, unfortunately. So Brad and Katie, thanks for coming on. And we're excited because we're going to shift this conversation to the second half of advocacy, which is the nuts and bolts of how do you do it? Because I think a lot of physicians are interested in trying to make change, but we don't necessarily know how to make it happen. How do we get involved? And what are the nitty gritty steps to getting it done? So thank you for this conversation. And I'm looking forward to the next one. Thanks so much, Wendy. Thank you. Wendy, whenever we get together and talk about change and advocacy, one of the things that I think we often remind one another of is a quote from Don Berwick. And that's this whole concept that if you're feeling helpless, you should act, you should do something about it. And I think both Katie and Brad really exemplify that concept of speaking up and doing something when they see a problem. Yeah, for sure. And you can hear it when they start to feel frustrated. The thing they reach to first is action. Who else is feeling like this? And how can we do something about it? And what struck me over and over again as they were speaking was this 
idea, we often think that we need to change everything at once. And especially Katie, when she was talking about her background in advocacy, she emphasized starting small, starting local with things that she could reach, and building on that both on a bigger stage and also with more people. This, to me, is a good lesson because I'm not like that, but we've heard this from quite a number of people who are experts in this area. Carlina Rivera, for one, and we have somebody coming up later in the season who spoke about this as well, which is start with incremental change. Start with things that you can feel and touch and see and go from there and, and, and build a movement rather than trying to start too big and failing. Yeah. And I think the other thing that always strikes me when I talk with advocates is when I started learning about it, I thought of it as just testifying before Congress. And it's really not. There are so many ways to be an advocate, either for your colleagues or for your patients, that I just think of it as, how do you speak up? How do you find a way to find your voice mm-hmm. wherever mm-hmm. you are, whether you're in a boardroom, whether you're in an exam room, how do you find a way to speak up? Right. Even more than just how do you do it, there are actually steps to do it <laughs> that you can tangibly follow. I think you think about these even more clearly than, than some people, Wendy. Yeah, so what I heard with Katie and Brad both is the steps they outlined were to identify the problem, to understand it clearly, meaning talk to the people around you. Are they experiencing the same thing? Gather whatever data you can, but also take the time to do the deep research. What are the policies around it? What is the legislation around it? And what has been done already? Do the research on who's doing the action? Can you connect with them and collaborate? And in doing that, you do the third step, which is to find your stakeholders. And that way you can start building your coalition. How do you move forward? And that reminds me of Priya Mm Maman, who we've had on before, who spoke about her own advocacy. What's fascinating to me as I think about that is this is not a foreign concept to physicians, right? Your patient comes in with a problem you do the research, you look through the records, you find the stakeholders, you look to the family, you talk to the other physicians that have taken care of them. You start with the small things that you can fix. Maybe it's the stopping smoking, maybe it's the uh, home situation, and then you go about building a team to take care of them. So this is not a foreign concept, it's just reapplying things that we all do all the time and applying them in a slightly different way. Yeah, absolutely. for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios, and our podcast coordinator is Ariel Morton. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can always make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, so you can continue the conversation, and you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, it makes it easier for other listeners to find us. Thanks for listening. And stay well.